The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. Greetings, scribes. Just a quick break to recommend our recent sponsor's Book of the Month. Book of the Month makes reading better by offering members a few new book selections each month to help you cut through the noise, save time, and make it easier to decide what to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles and picks five to seven of the best new books for you to choose from. All of these books are good, so you really can't go wrong. Book of the Month helps readers like you and I find books that we wouldn't normally discover on our own. The cool part is selections largely focus on new and upcoming authors in multiple genres. Book of the Month also recently launched curated audiobooks, so members can get a hardcover or an audiobook each month, which you can then download and listen to right in the app. This month, I chose A Little Supernatural Fair in Murder Road by New York Times bestselling author Simone St. James, described as the story of a young couple that find themselves haunted by a string of gruesome murders committed along an old deserted road in this terrifying new novel. Just go to bookofthemonth.com to pick your first book and join Book of the Month. That's bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can join and get that first book for just $9.99 with the code CHIRP. That's C-H-I-R-P. Enjoy. I got started writing as my senior year in college. I basically started writing a novel and through maybe a decade wrote five unpublishable novels, the fourth of which I ended up using as a plot point in my debut novel, Last Resort, um, which came out last year in, in 2022. But yeah, I sort of consider those failed novels as a kind of makeshift MFA. And through them, I think, learned a lot about voice and arc and plot. And of course, thinking about those years is sort of hard to do, but I couldn't have gotten to where I am today without them. Being edited always feels a little bit like cheating in a good way. It feels like stuff that you can't really see, but then you see the edits and you just feel the sentences tighten is always a privilege and something that I think really matters to the work. And welcome back to The Writer Files. I am still your humble host, Kelton Reed, wishing you pages, patience, and perseverance per usual. Critically acclaimed author Andrew Lipstein spoke to me about failure as an MFA, how he sold his first novel, why time spent not writing is also important, and his latest, The Vegan. Andrew's a Brooklyn-based writer who also works in finance and has a mathematics degree. His debut novel, Last Resort, was named a top 10 book of the year by Slate, 2022 best book by The New Yorker, Vulture, and a New York Times editor's choice. His latest, The Vegan, is described as a book about high finance, moral reckonings, veganism, guilt, greed, and how far we'll go to be good. It was named one of Town Country's must-read books of summer in ID Magazine, L, Lit Hub, and Our Culture Magazine's most anticipated book of 2023. Author Andrew Martin called it crime and punishment for the Brooklyn Brownstone set, and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Joshua Cohen called it a meaty comedy with a bleeding heart, highly recommended for all animals who read. In this file, Andrew and I discussed why he chose to use a pseudonym to sell his first book, the moral ambiguities of money, why having a great editor feels a lot like cheating, what to do if you can't find the time to write, why all of our best ideas come to us in the shower, and a lot more. Stay calm and write on. 
And don't forget, you can always support this show by heading to writerfiles.fm, where you can also sign up for email updates and other resources for writers. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click follow to automatically see new interviews in your podcatcher as soon as they're published and drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you tune in to help other writers find us. All right, we are back on The Writer Files. I am honored today to be joined by an esteemed guest. I have a critically acclaimed author on the line today. I've got Andrew Lipstein hanging out with us. What is going on over there, Andrew? Hey, Kelton, thank you for having me. Yeah, um, what's new? I, I know we got a new novel on the horizon, but um, what's the vibe over there? <laughs> well, I've just spent the past couple of hours um, doing edits for my third book, and you know, nothing makes me feel crazier or worse than just reading the same sentence over and over. So <laughs> I'm like um, in a terrible place mentally. All right, well, I'm glad we got you on a good day. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, cool. So you're working on the third one and, um, yeah, uh, we got, um, the vegan on the horizon and I want to talk about all things writing and the writing life, but yeah, from what I understand, your third novel is tentatively titled something rotten. Do you want to mention anything about it or are you just, are you just in a rotten mood? Well, it's um, the the book takes place in Copenhagen, and my my wife is Danish, and we spend a lot of time there. And it involved me basically like having a Danish brain trust to ask a lot of questions to. Um, you know, it's half the half the characters are Danish, so it, unlike my other books, I really felt I really feel more out of my element. You know, writing about a world I haven't actually inhabited myself. But yeah, I I love it. It's the first book I've written in third person. And um, I'm super excited about it. First and third person. Okay, so let's talk about your superhero origins as an author, because I understand you haven't always been a critically acclaimed novelist. Um, but yeah, take us back and talk about this really interesting winding career um, to, to the third one. And then obviously we're going to get into the vegan and talk about more about the forthcoming. Sure, yeah. Um, so no, I, I haven't always been a critically acclaimed author. I don't know. Are they, are they born? Do people just become that? No, I'm, I, I get, I get like everyone does so jealous of these, you know, like 24 year old debut novelists whose, whose novel is like terrific. And you just wonder how they could be so mature. My, my writing when I was 24 was just, you know, I, I, can't, I couldn't, couldn't even read it today. It's just so embarrassing. But I, uh, I, I got started writing at, as my senior year in college. I basically started writing a novel and through maybe a decade wrote five unpublishable novels, the fourth of which I ended up using as a plot point in my debut novel, Last Resort, um, which came out last year in, in 2022. But yeah, I sort of consider those failed novels as a kind of makeshift MFA. And through them, I think, learned a lot about voice and arc and plot. And of course, thinking about those years is sort of hard to do, but I couldn't have gotten to where I am today without them. Talk a little bit about yeah how that kind of shapes your your, your feelings about the latest, but also um, yeah this this really fascinating story of how um, you got your debut no novel published, Last Resort, which which you know is a is a pretty 
uh, inspiring story, honestly. Um, it was named, you know, 2022 best book by the New Yorker. Vulture the list goes on and on. It was a New York Times editor's choice. And of course, it kind of skewered um, the world of publishing. And, and you know, h- how do you describe it? I mean, because a lot has been said about it, but, you know, it's about a novelist who steals the plot of, of his best-selling book from a story of, of an acquaintance. But yeah, talk a little bit about how you describe it, because it is a literary novel. Um, you know, obviously, you might have some, some better description of, of Last Resort. Yeah, I mean, for some reason, the word satire sticks to it a lot. And I guess that's mm-hmm. not untrue, but I always do flinch a little bit when I hear that just because, and my new book too, The Vegan, is also people refer to it as a satire because I sometimes feel like satire is at odds with realism. I think when we say satire, we mean sometimes that you're pointing out certain characteristics of the real world and heightening them a bit so that um, kind of the more absurd aspects of it become more obvious to those who don't have as much experience with it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't consider it a satire necessarily myself. But yeah, the story of the, of getting that book out there was basically I think it was my third agent I had trying to sell that book, and she was great editorially, but she actually couldn't sell it. And so I used a pseudonym, the character in the story. I used his name, Caleb Horowitz, <laughs> and sent it to editors myself. And for those that don't know, it's like an editor gets an email from an uh, author directly, not through an agent. It's just something they normally ignore. But I think it was the fact that it was about publishing that some editors thought like maybe this person is someone, which, you know, I, I wasn't. Um, and I actually got a few editors interested in it and over here and in the UK actually, and kind of, uh, sold the book myself. Amazing. Yeah. And that must've been a, that in and of itself must've been kind of surreal, but of course, that wasn't the finished product, right? So did any of that inform the work in the editing process prior to publication? Do you mean after I sold it? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I had the um, the normal editing process with my editor, both in the US and the UK, Jonathan Galassi in the US, and Frederico Andronino in the, U- in the UK. You know, at going through it now, and before this, I was saying that it does, it is kind of a head trip and makes me feel a little crazy, but being edited always feels a little bit like cheating in a good way. It feels like <laughs> stuff that you can't really see, but then you see the edits and you just feel the sentences tighten is always a privilege and something that I think really matters to the work. I think through those years that I had been failing, I was also a little bit immature and not willing to take on feedback or edits. Mm-hmm. I really thought that I always knew best and how I wrote a sentence was how it was meant to be written. It, you know, Even saying that I'm so embarrassed. I think a lot of writers have trouble with that, whether it's edits on the sentence level or structurally. Um, you know, A lot of novels need to be rewritten, need to be re- reworked entirely. They're just not working from a plot or arc standpoint. And getting over that was uh, super important for me. Congrats on the reception of the latest, The Vegan, your second novel. Um, I I thought it was funny. I just went to your Twitter, I believe, and um, I'm going to use your own words to to describe what it's about. You said uh, it's about high finance, moral reckonings, um, veganism, language, 
Zequil, British Playwrights, Machine Learning, Original Sins, Status, Anxiety, Art, Circumcision, Guilt, Greed, and How Far We'll Go to Be Good. You want to talk a little bit more about that that uh, brief description? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's funny when you when you publish a book, you meet people, they ask you what it's about. And you feel like I should have a good answer for this. After being asked a thousand times, I should be able to answer this question. And maybe, you know, in the course of marketing a novel, you need to agree with your publisher on like a one-line description, a synopsis. You know, there there are there are ways to encapsulate it, but it never feels right. It always feels like you're cheating the book a little bit and, and cheating what you what you've done with it. Um, so with that Twitter post, I was just it was just kind of a funny way of just listing, just a list of things that come to mind when I <laughs> when I think about the book. Right, right. But yeah, the book the book is about the very last words, you know, what it means to be good, how far we'll go to be good, and what goodness means and all the shapes it can take. And prescient, do you think, now, uh, given, I don't know, the rise in the kind of the awareness of AI and all of its uh, trappings and, uh, of course, doomsaying, <laughs> but the, in the description, the protagonist, Herschel Kane holds the future of finance in the palm of his hand. His hedge fund's AI-driven algorithm has has the power to all but turn the stock market into his own personal ATM. He just needs some fuel to throw on the fire. Cash, of course, rules everything around us. But um, yeah, talk a little bit about kind of the genesis of the latest, um, the vegan, you know, because I know you've talked about finance and tech and the, and the marriage of the two, but you've written about it too at length. And I believe you worked for some startups, so you must have had some firsthand experience um, in that world, and uh, yeah, uh, talk about talk about this world and, and kind of the genesis of um, the vegan. Yeah, actually, for this for this book, I did a few months of research where I actually spoke to what's called quant hedge funds or algorithmic hedge funds um, CEOs, analysts, and traders, uh, actually including a billionaire. And I was just super curious about this world. I kind of when I thought of writing the book and then doing that research, I was just like, yes, I'm doing it. I just want to talk to these people. And it was, you know, to get the jargon, to get the industry right, but it was also to get their point of view. And, you know, the book asks a lot of moral questions. And I really want to know how these people see the world morally and what even questions come up in their line of work and how they see goodness. Um, I think, you know, the generally, especially people in cultural, see people in finance as just sort of unambiguously evil, you know, making money with money see it as a zero-sum game. And what I suspected and what proved true by these interviews was that it's not even a question. If you're in that industry, you're never stopping to think, is making money good or bad? And I don't think it is good or bad. But I was really interested in sort of the moral ambiguities that they that they came across. And um, yeah, I, I, I actually currently work for the brokerage app Robinhood, which doesn't really have to do with the book entirely. And actually, I wrote the book before I started working there. But yeah, I mean, I think that this moment of AI overlapping with finance and, of course, all of our lives, I want to say has never been more interesting or important, but I think it's actually going to become a lot more in the very short term. I mean, there in the past, there have been flash crashes, basically, where you know algorithmic trading has moved the market in the sort of extreme ways. And basically, when that happens, usually the public market is shut down for a period of time. But I think that how AI interacts with all of our life is basically distilled in how it interacts with finance in particular, which is that if an AI, if a machine 
if an algorithm can generate value, what does that mean for our conception of value to begin with? And this question is asked in the book. A lot of the characters voice different sides of it. But I think it's something very interesting that doesn't have any easy answers. Hmm. Yeah, it definitely brings up a lot of hand-wringing as well. But um, yeah, it's super interesting. And, and I think a lot of people are asking these questions, especially right now. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd be super interested to hear your thoughts about like, you know, the idea of Bitcoin or decentralized uh, banking or, you know, that that kind of thing. Because I think that it came into our all of our um, periphery with like Sam Bankman-Fried um, story. And that is very interesting um, in his kind of philosophy. But I don't know if I don't know if any of that informed this work in particular. It just seems like, yeah, as you mentioned, it's just like very it is very prescient. Well, yeah, I am. Um, and just to be clear, all opinions are my own, not associated with any institution <laughs> I am a part of or have been a part of. But yeah, I mean, the crypto story, you know, echoes from the past of uh, bubbles and things that have uh, been attractive to the masses and made a very made less people money off of it. But I will say that more institutionalized finance, meaning the public markets, um, are sometimes equally as fraught. You know, you have a lot of, even in, in small market cap stocks, market manipulation, you have, um, you know, ways to detach the price of a stock from the actual value of the company it represents in ways that are made to make certain people money. I mean, the caricature of a hedge fund is that they are finding ways to cheat and extract money from the market without actually creating money for themselves. It doesn't have to be the case. But crypto, I think, is almost an easy target when, in fact, a lot of the public markets are contrived, like a lot of things that we create are contrived and can benefit a very select few. Yeah, all fascinating stuff. I don't know if his philosophy is like, or, or you know, if that it's, if it's called effective altruism or kind of the the spin on it yeah well that's the funniest part is that he was yeah. going to give all of his money away and it's <laughs> it's an easy it's a it's a it's an amazing thing it's a very easy thing to say and of course when you don't have any money left um he got to reap in all of the profit of saying that without actually having to do it well i mean that's something i could probably pick your brain about forever but um of course we are talking about the vegan and the writing life and um so, uh, yeah, I thought it was cool that um, Cynthia Dupree Sweeney had blurbed it. And you have a ton of uh, great blurbs here. I just thought hers was cool. Um, she said, you want to tear through this ingenious tale in one sitting, but I urge you to resist and wallow in the strange, hilarious, whip-smart world Andrew Lipstein has built, exacting, upending, and constantly surprising. But yeah, lots of great blurbs here. Joshua Cohen called it a uh, meaty comedy with a bleeding heart, highly recommended for all animals who read. And of course, Publishers Weekly mentioned of the book, there's genuine suspense in Lipstein's meaty novel of ideas. This is well worth the investment. Um, man, you just got a wall of blurbs. And for both, I mean, The Last Resort just had like this insane, like multi-page, uh, yeah, all your all your peers came out to, to blurb it. That's got to feel pretty cool. In retrospect, I wish I included more about blurbs in Last Resort, you know, which is about the publishing industry. <laughs> sure. But I, when I wrote it, I hadn't actually had a book published, so I didn't, I didn't have that experience. But it's, you know, definitely one of one of the most contrived aspects of the of the, the publication process. Which isn't to say I'm not extremely thankful 
<laughs> for those writers that blurb me. But no, I mean, getting blurbs as a writer is, you know, it makes you feel like people you respect respect what you've done, which is which is a super a super amazing feeling. It kind of shows like who you hang out with in a sense. But also like, you know, I think getting blurbed by someone that you may not know and is like a, you know, a second or third level of a connection is kind of cool. It's like, oh wow, like people are paying attention to the work. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I actually don't I don't think I knew any blurbers cuz I I didn't didn't get an MFA and I don't I didn't really know anyone in the industry beforehand. But yeah, I mean, a lot of you see blurber, you see blurbs for books and sometimes like oh, you put it together that they've all gone to the same MFA or they all, you know, are a part of this magazine. Yeah, I want to talk about a little bit more about the process. You mentioned the the research piece, um, which sounded somewhat um, intensive. But yeah, so talk about you know, kind of your day-to-day uh, process and kind of when you get into a flow state, when you're past the research stuff and you, you've done kind of the incubation phase, what what do you feel like is the most productive uh, period for you and what does that kind of look or, or feel like for you? Yeah, for each book, it's been kind of different. For The Vegan, it was an intense period of writing. I think I started this book around Thanksgiving and finished it maybe shortly after Valentine's Day. And I felt like I wanted to use every hour I had free to write for this book, which which isn't the case for my third and wasn't for my first. But some days I wrote, you know, like 2,000, 3,000 words um, and basically did it seven days a week. And that's something I'll never do again. It, it, was, it was, in retrospect, a terrible experience. I slept terribly not because I was writing, just because I was so, I just was, had no time to chill. I didn't let my mind rest. And I was probably, yeah, not extremely happy during that period. And I got kind of obsessed with the book. I'm glad I did it. My son was born a few months after I finished it. And after that point, I don't think I could have worked on it for quite a bit of time. But, you know, when I'm writing, I think the time that I'm not, and the reason why I say I wouldn't do that again is that the time that I'm not writing is more important. And the less I write during the day, for my third book, I wrote maybe 500 words a day, you know, which only took a few hours. And then the rest of the day, I would occasionally think about the book and would find that the next day I was coming to it with more to write than I had time to write, which is just the best place to be. I think some of the worst writing for myself comes from me wanting to write, wanting to hit my word quotas that I'm so unreasonably obsessed with and just not having enough to say because then that writing is end up is going to end up not usable. But I found that you know you have to build up the reserves when you're not writing so that when you come back to the writing desk you you feel like you could it's just it's just coming from you like a flow. And I think that's that's proven because so many famous writers, you know, kind of talk about that important incubation time and the importance of hobby having hobbies why so many famous authors were were also like prolific walkers is what we call them oh yeah yeah what do you find is most important for you to unplug do you, do you have some hobbies i mean obviously you have a a small child 
um, to contend with. So that often becomes part of the routine. Yeah, no, I mean, you mentioned walking. For me, it's running 100%. Running, I would go on runs and come back to the house. This is before I had a, I brought my phone with me with like a 15 letter acronym of things to remember about the book. I think it's the act of not having anything else to put your mind on, you know, with running and the same is true for driving. You're, you're, you're physically occupied and like the base level of your thinking processes are taken care of. You still have to think, but the sort of like deeper wells are totally free to just be bored and explore um, and generate ideas. So for me, it's running, driving. It's like beyond a trope by now, but being in the shower is the same thing has been so generative for me. And actually, I got a smartphone after my second book, and I was extremely hesitant to do that because I love being bored. I think it's the best thing for creativity, but I just sort of had to. We were bumping around, moving around a lot. And with my son, I now have a smartphone and it sucks. (laughs) It's, uh, It's the worst thing. You know, I still find time to unplug and think, but it definitely has encroached on my being bored time. Yeah, interesting that you mentioned being bored, the importance of being bored, because actually a guest that came on the show, I think a couple of years ago, Manoush Zomorodi, who I, I believe is the host of the TED Radio Hour now, was doing another podcast and wrote a book titled Bored and Brilliant that kind of extolled the uh, virtues of of unplugging. That's exactly right. And I know there's been quite, a, I mean, obviously quite a bit written and, and talked about, about the importance of uh, unplugging, but yeah. All right. Well, I have a fun question for you before we wrap up with your um, advice to your fellow scribes. If you could have uh, dinner with or drinks or dinner and drinks with any author from any era, who would you take and where would you take them? All expenses paid, of course. Oh man. You know, I think I think when you get asked a question like this, you kind of want to give the most original answer as possible and choose like a, a really deep cut, like Romanian author that no one's ever heard of. But I'm going to answer this in probably the lamest way possible. And I will say Shakespeare, because, you know, there's some theories about whether he produced all of his work. And as far as contributing new storylines to the canon, I think he would be one of the most interesting people to talk to. Um, and I would take him someplace quiet <laughs> so, I could, <laughs> so I could hear what he had to say. Yeah, of course. I think it's important to to do a little detective work during this meal. Or Where, where, are, you t- where are you taking Shakespeare to dinner? Yeah, to just some, you know, out of favor, incredibly quiet, soon to go out of business Indian restaurant with no music. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, are, are you going to have drinks beforehand, or no? I want I want a clear head for sure. Okay, so maybe some mango lassies. Mm-hmm. Some mango lassies, <laughs> yeah. As long as it doesn't upset his stomach. I mean, he's probably used to just like rabbit stew and things like that. So I wouldn't want <laughs> no music, of course. All right, so you're doing a little detective work. You're going to get to the bottom of of it. I think it, that would be an important conversation for all. You'd have to bring some sort of recording device too. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, Andrew, well, we're going to let you get back to it. 
and uh, we hope that it, the editing process improves for you. But congrats on the vegan. Of course, I'll point your home base there, alipstein.com. You're on the socials. I'll link to your Twitter, your Instagram, of course. And um, yeah, if you if you could just uh, leave listeners with that, yeah, th- that piece of advice that, to just on how to persevere. You 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 have persevered, and of course, uh, to great success, but talk talk to us just a little bit about how to keep going yeah i i've definitely persevered and have had many times when i've wondered if i could and i think like anything you're not going to do a good job unless you absolutely love something and if you love writing then you won't stop if when you get failure if you feel that you have to change your writing in a way that makes you love it less it's not, it's not going to be worth it because you're not even going to continue with it if you get to a point where you don't love it. So I think I think follow any direction that you think will make you love writing more. Amazing. I think that's a perfect place to wrap up. Andrew, thank you for your time, your words, your wisdom. Wish you the best of luck, of course, with The Vegan. And come back in the future and wrap with us again. All right. Thank you so much, Kelton. Thanks so much for joining us for this file. And if you're a fan of the show, simply head over to writerfiles.fm for more. That's writerfiles.fm.